Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. Last time in part one of my interview with Stephanie Gray Connors, author and international speaker, we discussed that human beings are not products. We are not commodities. We are not produced, but begotten. God's design is to have us begotten in love. And like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Mother, Father, and Child are an exchange of love. When new life does not flow from love, it is very painful. This heartache leads many to succumb to the temptation of artificial reproductive technologies like IVF in vitro fertilization. The temptation is strong because the pain and anguish felt by infertile couples is very real and often leads to desperate measures which are not well thought out. Today you'll hear part two of my recent interview with Stephanie Gray Connors as we discuss her new book, Conceived by Science, Thinking Carefully and Compassionately About Infertility and IVF. Before we continue, let us pray. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops only with prayer, prayer that storms the heavens, for justice and mercy, prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls, will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced with a culture of life. The Gospel of John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 and verses 19 through 21 of chapter 3 reads this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, and without him nothing came to be. And what came to be through him was life. And this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And this is the verdict. That the light came into the world, but people preferred darkness to light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come toward the light 
so that his works might not be exposed. But whoever lives the truth comes to the light so that his works may be clearly seen as done by God. O God, sometimes the darkness of evil is freely chosen and sometimes it is chosen under duress and ignorance. Sometimes the pain and anguish of an unfulfilled desire leads us to choose darkness to cloak the unethical means to fulfill a desire. Lord, help us to see that we have no right to manufacture life while at the same time destroy life. Help us to perceive that life is a gift and not a right. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time I made reference to biblical examples of the pain of infertility. Scripture has many examples of miraculous interventions into the lives of those who are burdened with infertility. Sarah, who became the mother of Isaac. Elizabeth, who became the mother of John the Baptist. And Hannah, who became the mother of the prophet Samuel, are three such women. There are many modern-day examples of the pain of infertility, and one of them is referenced by Stephanie Gray Connors in her book, Conceived by Science, Thinking Carefully and Compassionately About Infertility and IVF. In chapter one of her book, she relates, One of my friends faced infertility for the first four years of her marriage. She said, The hardest was hearing about abortion. For this I was frustrated with God. Why would he give babies to women that did not want them, but would not give me a baby after I had been so careful to do everything in my power to be able to have a baby? She also shared the monthly sorrow and disappointment she experienced upon the arrival of her period. A vivid reminder that infertility would, cycle after cycle, continue to be her story. That day was always really rough, she said. Eventually, my friend and her husband adopted, as well as managed to conceive. But then they went through an inexplicable year and a half of four miscarriages. Of that cross, she explained, the worst one physically and emotionally was my second one that ended in me passing out in the bathtub, covered in my own blood, and having to go to the hospital in an ambulance for a DNC. This one also introduced me to the life of gray. After this miscarriage, the world was gray, and everything felt hard to do. Getting out of bed felt like climbing a large mountain. Laundry, cooking, spending time with my kids, the joy had been sucked out of my life. This persisted for multiple months until I spoke to a friend about it, and she shared similar experience 
after her miscarriage. For some reason, just saying it out loud and having these feelings validated really helped. You will now hear part two of my interview with Stephanie Gray Connors, where we continue to discuss how artificial reproductive technologies, including IVF, uses unethical means to fulfill the good desire of having a baby. We pick up the interview by discussing one particularly egregious component often used in IVF, which is the use of surrogacy. Later on, we discuss ethical means of treating infertility to achieve the good end of having a baby. When you have contracts with surrogates, sometimes it's written in there, well, you'll, we'll give you X amount of money to have a baby, but if we find out there's a, a deformity, then you have to have an abortion, and that's just an added uh, atrocity to the whole process. Right, and you know what I found in some, some uh, places I saw online, that they will incentivize the surrogate to have the abortion if the couple that contracted the pregnancy don't want the child anymore, and they, they'll pay the surrogate $10,000 yeah, to have an abortion. Amazing. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just really dark when you, when you dig into it, and a lot of people don't dig into it because they understandably want a baby so badly. Yeah. So they only focus on the good desire, the good result. They don't want to examine the means. They right. don't want to look closely at what happens in between because it's dark and because it's disturbing. But if we close our eyes to the darkness and, and the disturbing nature, it doesn't make it go away. And so that's why it's so important we bring to the light what actually does happen so that we say, hmm, maybe, maybe there's something wrong here. You know, this whole, um, the idea of IVF or artificial reproductive technologies is having babies without sex, as you mentioned mm -hmm. at the beginning, and that's kind of the mirror image of what contraception is. Contraception is uh, having sex without babies, and then it kind of devolves into babies without sex. So I, I kind of see a lot of current social problems and, and all the, um, you know, the evils that have to do with cheapening life. It seems in a, in a large way to have started with uh, contraception. What are your, your thoughts about that? Sure, I definitely think a connection can be made. It's one of those things where on the surface with someone who hasn't perhaps dove too deeply into either topic, they might say, what? Those seem like two different things. Mm -hmm. One couple doesn't want a baby. Another couple desperately wants a baby. How could there be any parallels? But the key, the key common denominator between both issues is they go against the nature of how our bodies were designed and how God made things to be. Mm -hmm. So in one case of fertility, where that is the sign of the body working right, you have a couple that are like, well, I'm going to suppress this, whether it's some sort of chemical like a birth control pill or um, a surgery like a vasectomy or a condom, whatever the method is, the point is you're taking a body that's working right, right, and then you're suppressing its normal, healthy, and good function. So you're going against its nature. Right. In the other case of infertility and IVF, you have a body that's working wrong, right? So a body isn't able to conceive when when it should. So maybe the woman isn't ovulating or uh, the man has a low sperm count or whatever the case may be. So something's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And then instead of trying to correct the problem at its root and restore the body to its normal and healthy function, something I address in my book as being ethical, instead of that, 
IVF overrides it entirely and creates a whole new way of bringing someone into existence. So instead of saying, okay, sex is how you're supposed to bring children into existence, let me correct the underlying problem so when you have sex, it's more likely to achieve a baby. Mm -hmm. IVF says, let me just create a whole new way of making a baby. And so in, in both cases, the two extremes, whether it's contraception or whether it's IVF, it's going against the nature of how our bodies were designed by our creator, who had a very particular plan and method for creating more people made in his image. Right, and in I always think of um, love leading to life, and of course you you talk about that uh, extensively. And in contraception and an IVF, in both cases, you you have the separation of love and life. Right, it's like picking picking one or the other, but not both. Now, someone might point out, you know, uh, when a, a woman isn't fertile in a particular month and a couple has sex, life naturally won't come about. Mm-hmm. Or if a woman is post-menopausal and she has sex, life naturally won't come about. And that's true. The difference there is, biologically, it's within our designs by right. our creator that life shouldn't come about at those two times, right. times of the month, or certain seasons of life after, uh, such as after menopause. So God has made it so that there are seasons of infertility and mm-hmm. seasons of fertility. The problem is, when he makes a season of fertility by his design, the problem is when his creatures, who aren't creator, say, I don't like your design, and I'm going to take right. your season of fertility, and I'm going to make it infertility. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and so that's where it's that, that rebellion that is the very beginning mm-hmm. of, of man, where mm-hmm. Adam and Eve say, you've told me a certain rule, but, you know, this alternative doesn't seem so bad, so why can't I just do this? And so it's almost like, without people realizing, it's that same attitude of people saying, look, the sex isn't working and creating a baby, this alternative IVF doesn't seem so bad, so why can't I just do right. it? And it's about saying, look, I don't see the, the full picture. I don't always get it, but I have to trust that God is a Father and He is good. So if He has created things to be a certain way, who am I as the creature who isn't his equal, who doesn't have his perspective, who am I to say he's wrong about something mm-hmm. and, and I'm right? And you, um, you kind of alluded to um, natural family planning there, and you mentioned how it's God's plan that there are cycles of, uh, within a woman's cycle, there's a fertile time and an infertile time, and how that works very beautifully as, a, as an alternative to contraception. And actually, that same understanding that we have about a woman's cycle has led to an ethical alternative to IVF, mm-hmm. uh, so-called um, restorative reproductive medicine. Can you just say a little bit more about how this approach of restorative reproductive medicine, maybe say a little bit about it, and I can give you my experience too, but how they're so different. One is a rebellion, like artificial reproductive technology, whereas restorative reproductive medicine tries to heal whatever goes wrong with with God's uh, design. 
Sure. Yeah. So, you know, that's in in the chapter of my book called Shalom. I really unpack this idea of restorative reproductive medicine. If you look in the Old Testament, and some of the points I make in my book of, of the word Shalom, we often think, okay, this was a word that meant peace, and people would say Shalom is a, a type of greeting to others. And that's certainly one of the uses of the word. But and more often than not, the term was used to really convey the importance of wholeness, of right-ordered relationship between people and things and God. And so the point I make is that before the fall, there was this beautiful wholeness and a right-ordered relationship with everything, God's creation and God to his creation. But then that got broken through the introduction of Adam and Eve's sin, so that uh, death entered the world and disease entered the world and brokenness entered the world. And so we should naturally try to reweave shalom. We should try to restore that which is broken, heal that which is sick. Uh, that's what Jesus did in his healing ministry. If someone had a fever, you know, I think Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus, uh, took that fever away. If someone was blind, he gave them sight. So the idea of restoring the body to how it was designed is good. You know, we want to have that beautiful way of things before the fall. And so in this broken world, if people find out that there's a brokenness to their bodies, that perhaps the woman isn't ovulating, or she has blocked fallopian tubes, which means sperm can't pass through them up to the egg, the egg can't move down, embryos wouldn't be able to pass through and so forth. Uh, she has blocked, uh, as I said, blocked fallopian tubes, if she has PCOS, if she has endometriosis, these are various conditions that can impact one's fertility. So we can and should reweave shalom. So this is where if you have blocked fallopian tubes, you can have surgery done to unblock them. Um, if you have PCOS, you could have a surgery called an ovarian wedge resection. Mm -hmm. And I give an example of a friend of mine who had that procedure done and a year later got pregnant and has since had uh, two other children as well. So uh, if someone has endometriosis, you could also do surgery to right. remove the various problematic areas inside and outside her uterus where you have then the endometrial cells. Um, if a woman, in my experience, was low in progesterone, yes. as I was in my, my first pregnancy, we miscarried my baby as a result of uh, we believed to be low progesterone. Mm -hmm. My second pregnancy, because we discovered this was a problem, I sought out a physician in the world of restorative reproductive medicine, also called NAPRO technology or Creighton. And uh, he uh, basically administered progesterone uh, through tablets for, you know, 23 weeks, uh, up to 23 weeks right. of my pregnancy that enabled my baby to stay alive in my womb until my body could work as it should on its own. And, you know, I, I gave birth actually precisely full term exactly on my baby's due date. So that's an example where, okay, if you're low in a certain hormone, let's give you the hormone you need. If there's a part of your body that's, that's blocked off, let's unblock it. If there's, you know, so the point is, it's, it's absolutely good to reweave shalom and to use technology. To be right. against IVF, I think it's an important point to make. To, use, to be against IVF is to not be against technology. It's to be against the improper use of yes. technology. I liken it to the use of computers. They are very handy. Perhaps some people are going to listen to this through a computer. We may email and, and use social media to communicate with family members and friends about meeting up. We might sell our car on, on you know, Facebook Marketplace. But some people might use their computers to watch pornography. Mm -hmm. And we would say, hold on, that's not like all the other examples of computer use. The, the first few examples of using technology were good, 
but accessing pornography is not a good use of technology. Mm -hmm. So we don't say all technology is bad. We say it's how we use the technology. So the same is true when it comes to medical technology. I am not a dinosaur that says, you know, you shouldn't have pacemakers and you shouldn't do surgery and you shouldn't take hormone treatment. No, there, there are some uses of technology that are ethical because they restore the body to its healthy state. Mm-hmm. They actually correct a problem at its root. Right. And so the difference with IVF is it's not correcting a problem. It's creating a whole new way of not only bringing someone into existence, but really manufacturing them and, and making them at the hands of someone who is a stranger to the parents, who is not a part of their covenantal relationship, which was a sacred promise they made to each other and to God, and and at the most intimate moment of of that sacred relationship, the sexual act which could create life, it wouldn't be appropriate to contract out the creation of life to someone who's not part Mm -hmm. of that relationship. Mm -hmm. I always think that in many ways, doing the ethical thing often turns out to be the more efficacious, too. I think of, yes. I think of uh, in my own practice, women have, they've had infertility and they've been to IVF and they had, turned out they had endometriosis. And when I referred somebody for endometriosis surgery, they were able to achieve pregnancy. Whereas when they went to uh, an IVF clinic, they didn't care. They said, well, it doesn't matter what you have. We'll just, we'll just bypass the whole process. And a great analogy that I heard used um, many years ago was was if a, if a man goes to the emergency room with shortness of breath and he gets treated, he comes home and his wife inquires, so what was the problem? He says, oh, I had shortness of breath. Well, I know he had shortness of breath. That's why he went to the ER. So what did they give you? They gave me some um, heparin in case it was a blood clot. They gave me some Lasix in case it was heart failure. And they gave me some steroids in case it was asthma. Well, that's, that's just treating symptoms. It's not getting to the underlying problem. And that's, right. that's the beauty of restorative reproductive medicine is it gets to the problem. You can't, you know, only it seems in IVF do you not care about the diagnosis. This concludes part two of my conversation with Stephanie Gray Connors. Tune in next time to the final segment of the interview when we will discuss how, unlike IVF, restorative reproductive medicine is both effective and ethical as it seeks to make a correct diagnosis before embarking on a therapeutic regimen. The Catechism of the Catholic Church speaks eloquently about the gift of a child. A child is not a right of the couple, but a gift to the couple. Paragraphs 2373 through 2379 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church reads this way. Sacred Scripture and the Church's traditional practice see in large families a sign of God's blessing and the parents' generosity. Couples who discover that they are sterile suffer greatly. What will you give me, asks Abraham of God, for I continue childless. And Rachel cries to her husband Jacob, Give me children. 
or I shall die. Research aimed at reducing human sterility is to be encouraged on condition that it is placed at the service of the human person, of his inalienable rights, and his true and integral good, according to the design and will of God. Techniques that entail the dissociation of husband and wife by the intrusion of a person other than the couple, such as sperm donation or ovum donation or a surrogate uterus, are gravely immoral. These techniques infringe the child's right to be born of a father and mother known to him and bound to each other by marriage. They betray the spouse's right to become father and mother only through each other. Techniques involving only the married couple, such as artificial insemination, are perhaps less reprehensible, yet remain morally unacceptable. They dissociate the sexual act from the procreative act. The act which brings the child into existence is no longer an act by which two persons give themselves to each other, but one that entrusts the life and the identity of the embryo to the power of doctors and biologists and establishes domination of technology over the origin and destiny of the human person. Such a relationship of domination is in itself contrary to the dignity and equality that must be common to parents and children. Under the moral aspect, procreation is deprived of its proper perfection when it is not willed as the fruit of the conjugal act, that is to say, of the specific act of spouse's union. Only respect for the link between the meanings of conjugal act and respect for the unity of the human person make procreation in conformity with the dignity of the person. A child is not something owed to one, but is a gift. The supreme gift of marriage is a human person. A child may not be considered a piece of property, an idea to which an alleged right to a child would lead. In this area, only the child possesses genuine rights, the right to be the fruit of the specific act of the conjugal love of his parents, and the right to be respected as a person from the moment of his conception. The gospel shows that physical sterility is not an absolute evil. Spouses who still suffer from infertility after exhausting legitimate medical procedures should unite themselves with the Lord's cross, the source of all spiritual fecundity. They can give expression to their generosity by adopting abandoned children or performing demanding services for others. Until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect.
and at the very least, we should first do no harm. First do no harm with Dr. Mark Rollo is produced at WQPH 89.3 FM, Shirley Richburg. We are very happy to share it with other networks. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rollo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrollo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember, first, do no harm.